Following this morning's service, I believe in a hearing aid was found and put in Diane's uh, office. Uh, so if you lost a hearing aid, you probably didn't hear that. And so, uh, so hopefully someone will tell you later. <laughs> but uh, no, if, if, you, if you need it, it's in Diane's office. Um, so this morning, uh, we were talking about Luke Acts, and we were talking about how the Joel 2 prophecy is the backdrop to the whole story of Luke Acts. And Luke begins by like dropping hints and seeds of this prophecy in the beginning of the birth stories of John the Baptist and of Jesus. And then once Jesus is filled with the Spirit, you begin to kind of follow his ministry throughout. Uh, and that ultimately leads to the Spirit falling upon the, the disciples in Acts chapter 2. And that's when you finally get the quotation of the Joel 2 prophecy. But as soon as that happens you start seeing the promise of the Spirit being a major theme throughout the rest of the book of Acts. So at the very end of Peter's sermon that day, he promises the gift of the Spirit, Holy Spirit. Uh, he says, the promises to you and to your children and to all, who, all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. Uh, you see these promises that the Spirit will be given to all who obey him. You see promises of uh, the church being indwelled, or you see... Um, scenarios where the church is, is filled with the Spirit while praying after uh, Peter is released from prison. You see uh, that uh, when Ananias, oh, not Ananias and Sapphira, um, once I think of the name, wait a minute, is it Ananias? Once, once I say the wrong, it is Ananias and Sapphira, Nadab and Abihu. As soon as I said Ananias and Sapphira, I thought Nadab and Abihu, and I thought, no, wait, that's Leviticus. Anyway. All of that is to say, Ananias and Sapphira, uh, when they lied to the church about their giving, uh, they were told that they were lying to the Holy Spirit. Um, you can see that when the church, because of persecution, uh, spread to Samaria, the Holy Spirit fell upon the Samaritans, or was given to the Samaritans there. Um, as you see that the Gentile mission began, you see it first with Cornelius, and then you see it in Paul's missionary journeys. You see in Acts chapter 15, as there's this big discussion in Jerusalem about what exactly are the requirements of Gentiles as they're now entering into the movement. We've all been circumcised as part of the covenant with God. Should they do that also? Should we put upon them some of the requirements of the law or, or can they just come in completely without obedience to the law of Moses or, or what's the deal there? And that's, that's what they try to hash out. One of the things that Peter says is, look, when I was teaching the word of God to Cornelius, the Holy Spirit fell on him without circumcision without uh, obedience to Torah. So maybe that's kind of a, a pattern that we should notice. Maybe that's something that we should follow from this point forward. And then Paul is able to say, yeah, and, and signs and wonders were happening when we went among the Gentiles without teaching circumcision. So it seems that God approves of this Gentile mission. And then James, uh, the brother of Jesus, gets up and he quotes from the very end of the book of Amos, which talks about uh, the, the, all those, the Gentiles who were called by the name of the Lord, that God has them in mind and, and he wants them to be part of his possession also. And so you go through and they're using scripture, but they're also using Joel too seemed to happen to the Gentiles also. That wasn't just for us. And if you remember the wording of Joel too, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. And that's what Acts is showing happening. And so, and so as you go through that, you begin to see that Joel 2 is kind of at the, the backdrop of all of these major events as the church spreads from Jerusalem to the remotest parts of the world. Joel 2 is taking over the world. Uh, some other ways that you can see that Joel 2 prophecy, and it becomes even more clear, I think, what Paul is doing, or sorry, what Luke is doing, is uh, looking at the whole thing and seeing that it's not just 
the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that becomes a major theme. But pretty much every part of that prophecy becomes some major idea that Acts is going to pick up on and is going to follow so that throughout you can see, oh wow, that's a Joel 2 moment. You know, that, that's, a, that's a Holy Spirit moment. That's a, the Lord pouring out his spirit on all flesh moment. That is a, a signs and a wonders moment. That's a salvation coming in the name of the Lord moment. So again, turn with me to Acts chapter 2. We're going to read through the prophecy, and we're going to focus tonight on some of the other aspects of it. So in Acts chapter 2, again, this is the day of Pentecost, the, the day the church is beginning. Uh, you have the disciples after Jesus has been raised. He has ascended to the Father. They, the Holy Spirit falls upon them, and uh, they are filled with the Holy Spirit. Chapter 2 and verse 4, one of the signs of that is they begin speaking in tongues, and a bunch of crowd gathers. We're told that this crowd is from all the nations under heaven, which is really interesting. You know, if, if the Spirit's going to fall upon all flesh, there's a good place to start. You know, all the nations under heaven are gathered in one spot. Uh, we, we've talked about this passage before in other sermons, but there are a lot of similarities between this Acts 2 passage and the Tower of Babel story. Only it's kind of the reverse of the Tower of Babel story. In the Tower of Babel story, you have all the people with one language in one city, but after the story's over, they end up dispersing, and it's because of sin, and their languages are divided. You have like all the different, you have one language become many. What you have in Acts 2 is these people from all different places coming back to one city and the many languages becoming one through the, uh, the gift of tongues. And you see the, the focus is no longer on building a great name for themselves, but it is on uh, declaring the mighty works of God, chapter 2 and verse 11. And so what you have happening is the division at Babel, one of the purposes of the church is to reunify the world under one kingdom and under one Lord. Instead of having so much division and all of this, you're, you see that every nation, tongue, and people are able to praise God with one voice. And that's one of the, the beautiful parts of the unity of the church. And that's one of the things that, by the way, I love about, like, if you get to travel to a different place or, or worship in another country where they don't even speak the same language, it's a reminder of the fact that there's something, there's something worldwide taking place through Jesus, and we get to be a part of it. And we don't always see that. And it's a really awesome thing to see. But you see a glimmer of that here in Acts chapter 2. The whole world gathers together in Jerusalem, and they hear the word of God, and the Holy Spirit falls, and they're promised forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit through repentance and baptism. But as they're gathered, Peter begins to explain what they're seeing. And he says in chapter 2 and verse 17, <clears throat> And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth my spirit on all mankind. That's what we saw in Acts chapter 2. I mean, in, in uh, Luke chapter 1 and 2 with uh, John the Baptist, and then with Mary, and then with uh, Elizabeth, and then with Zacharias, and then you see um, uh, Simeon, and then you see Anna, and then you see Jesus. And it's like the Holy Spirit is filling each of these people, and you look at them, and it's, you continue to read, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. You start seeing sons and daughters prophesying in those passages. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, and even the bond slaves, both men and women. And by the way, it's interesting how often the word bond slave or bond servant is also used describing those people in the early chapters of Luke. But he says, and I will pour forth my spirit and they shall prophesy. And you see all of that happening. And so you're starting to think, wow, you know, that's 
that's kind of interesting. As you read through Luke and then you read through Acts, you're going to see the same thing. You're going to see that you're going to run into sons and daughters who prophesy. You're going to run into to sons and daughters who have the Holy Spirit throughout the book of Acts. And uh, all of that is pointing back to this Joel 2 moment. Um, but then the passage continues, and you see in verse 19, And I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below blood and fire and vapor and smoke and the sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the lord shall come and it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the lord shall be saved what we're going to do in the lesson tonight is focus more on that second half of it the idea of signs and wonders and the idea of calling upon the name of the lord or at least the name of the Lord. Uh, the name of the Lord from this point forward becomes prominent in almost every chapter. There's going to be references to doing things in the name of the Lord, and it's going to cover a wide array of actions and, and deeds by the early church that are done in the name of the Lord. And that becomes this, this really important uh, theme or pattern throughout Acts. And whenever you see it, it should remind you Joel 2. It should remind you of this day right here, uh, where these things started taking place. But first, I want to notice that signs and wonders. Um, so there are a couple of words in the Bible that are usually used for uh, what we would call miracles. Uh, there actually isn't a Greek word that specifically means miracle, that means like a supernatural event. All of the words that are used for miracles are words that could be used also for things that aren't miracles. So, so they don't necessarily mean miracle, even though they can describe a miracle. But a quick way to describe it, I guess, is uh, if I'm writing about a baseball game and someone hits a home run, and I say it was, uh, you know, he hit it, it went over the fence, and it was awesome. So I use the word awesome to describe a home run, but the word awesome doesn't necessarily mean home run, even though it can be used to describe a home run. The words that are used to describe miracles don't necessarily mean miracle. Like the word sign. Sign doesn't mean miracle. Um, uh, circumcision is a sign, and that would be the same word. Or let me give you an example. In Luke, all the way back at the beginning, look at the book of Luke, uh, chapter 1. I'm sorry, chapter uh, 2. In Luke chapter 2 and verse 12, this is describing the birth of Jesus. And uh, there are some shepherds who an angel appears to, and they are uh, told basically where they're going to find the Christ and the Lord. And as they uh, do this, you can look at verse 10, and it says, Do not be afraid, for behold, I will bring good news of great joy, which will be for all people. By the way, that's, that's important. All people is kind of like pouring forth my spirit on all flesh. Uh, but on all people, for today in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior who is the Lord and the Christ. All right, so if you want to know where to find them, he's going to give them a clue, and it's in verse 12. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Okay, so the sign is that they're going to see a baby in a manger wrapped in clothes. That's not a, a miracle to wrap a baby in clothes and put him in a manger, but it's, it indicates something. It's, it's, a, it's something that would be rare that you would see, and you're like, oh, okay, this is what he's talking about. Um, and so the word sign 
doesn't necessarily mean miracle, although it certainly can apply to miracles. It basically means some event or some action that has a deep significance or meaning. Uh, and most of the miracles did that. They, they not only were a miracle, but they also had a meaning attached to them. And so that's the word sign, and it appears quite a bit. But one thing that's interesting is at the birth of Jesus, you're starting to see signs. What did Joel 2 say? Just like the Spirit's going to be poured out, and you start seeing people filled with the Spirit in Luke 1 and 2, you see even at the birth of Jesus, there are signs to begin looking for. Signs are going to start appearing. Um, if you look at uh, chapter 2 in verse 33, you remember Simeon? Uh, he is uh, the man filled with the Holy Spirit. He's a prophet. He's at the temple. And uh, after giving this word of blessing, he says in verse 33, and his, uh, Jesus' father and mother, that's Mary and Joseph, they were amazed at the things which were being said about Jesus. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to, the opposed, uh, to be opposed. And a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts will be revealed." Uh, so it's kind of a cryptic, uh, not, a, not a happy sign there that he gives to, uh, to Mary. But notice he says that Jesus is going to be a sign. Uh, and so what you're seeing is Joel 2 talks about the Holy Spirit falling on all these people. And you start seeing that in Luke 1 and 2. And then he says that there's going to be signs on the earth below. And you start looking and signs start appearing as the story begins. But then as you get to Acts chapter 2, turn back there. Uh, you can see, by the way, examples of signs that Jesus does throughout his ministry. Uh, in fact, there, it, word spreads about him so that when Jesus is on trial, he gets sent to Herod in the Gospel of Luke. And Herod's excited because he's hoping to see a sign, and Jesus doesn't do any for him. But, but signs are kind of defining Jesus. There's another point earlier in Luke where people are wanting to see signs, and Jesus says, I'll give you a sign. Look at Jonah. Uh, Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. That's the sign uh, for, for what you're doing. And he sometimes, do, when people are demanding signs, of him. He doesn't always, uh, you know, go along with what they're wanting. But, uh, but you're seeing that the idea of signs is all throughout the ministry of Jesus. In Acts chapter 2, in verse 19, when Joel 2 is being quoted, Peter says, and I will grant wonders in the skies above and signs on the earth below. So you're looking for wonders and signs. Notice how the ministry of Jesus is described in verse 22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs. Remember I said there are three words that are used uh, for, for miracle. Uh, the word miracle is just the word power. Uh, you might have even heard it before. Uh, the word dunamis, uh, it just means something powerful. So like in, in Romans 1.16, um, we're, we're told that the, the gospel is the power of God into salvation to everyone who believes. And uh, some people have even said, well, because we eventually got the word dynamite from the word dunamis, it's like, it's explosive, it's powerful. Now, keep in mind, no one reading these texts was thinking of dynamite when they read that word because it didn't exist yet. So the, the word doesn't mean dynamite, but, uh, but that's what the word means. Like, the, the word means powerful. And, uh, and so, again, power is... Miracles are powerful, but not everything that's powerful is a miracle. Uh, so it's a word that can be used to describe miracles, but it's not necessarily a word that means miracle. Uh, but what you see right here is he says there were miracles and wonders. Again, a wonder is something. There are a lot of things that you wonder at, and you think, wow, that's, that's 
that's amazing, that's bizarre, that's incredible, that's, you know, awe-inspiring, and a lot of miracles would be things that you wonder about. Uh, but at the same time, not everything you wonder about is a miracle. So none of these words mean a supernatural event, although sign, power, and wonder can all be used to describe them. But they're all three used right here to describe the life and ministry of Jesus, which was just described in the, in the Gospel of Luke. So Theophilus gets this letter with all of the stuff that Jesus does in Luke, and then Peter, describing the ministry of Jesus, says he did miracles and wonders and signs. Where do you think that language of wonders and signs is coming from? Those are the very words he just used. He just pulled them from Joel 2. He just used them a couple verses earlier in verse 19, and now he's saying, and that's what Jesus did. And here's what Acts generally does with the ministry of Jesus. You have something that Jesus did, and then Jesus dies, and he's raised, and he ascends to heaven. The thing that Jesus did doesn't stop. It continues on. Only it's not Jesus specifically doing it now. It is his body, the church. It is the disciples or his followers. It is those who have committed to carry on the ministry of Jesus. They now do those things in the book of Acts. And there are countless examples of this. You know, who was the great masterful teacher in the gospel of Luke? It was Jesus, while his disciples usually failed to understand what was going on. But all of a sudden you get to Acts. And who's the great master? Who are the great, wonderful teachers that no one can cope with their wisdom? It's the disciples. Uh, in, in the gospel of, uh, or in Luke, how, uh, who's the great healer? You know, who can raise the dead? Who, uh, who is it that if you touch the fringe of his garment, you can be healed? It's Jesus. Well, you start reading through Acts, and guess what? Those same descriptions are used of the disciples. Who is it that while dying says, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do? In Luke. It's Jesus. Who is it that in Acts, as he's being stoned to death, he sees Jesus and says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Which, by the way, the final words of uh, Jesus in Luke are, into your hands I commit my spirit. As Stephen's dying, he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. But he also says, Father, do not hold this sin against them. Uh, like, they continue on the life and the ministry and the even the personality in some ways of Jesus into the book of Acts. So if the ministry of Jesus doesn't stop with Luke, it continues on through the church. And I believe it should still continue on today through what we're called to do. We are the body of Jesus. And so his body's not gone. His body's right here and we're supposed to be living it out. And so you see right here, signs and wonders was spoken of in, the, in Joel. Jesus, he spent his life doing these signs and wonders. He was fulfilling these ideas of Joel. But then guess what happens right after uh, Peter finishes the sermon? He tells the people you need to be baptized. 3,000 people are baptized. If you look at uh, verse 42 of Acts 2, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to breaking of bread and to prayers. And then notice verse 43. And everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. Wonders and signs, where's that language coming from? That's Joel too. That is what Joel said was gonna happen. That's what Jesus did. And now that's what the church is starting to do. That's what the apostles are starting to do. And people are crowding around and people are amazed by it. But guess what? It doesn't quite stop there. Uh, you get to Acts chapter three, and uh, G Peter and, and John, uh, they end up going to the temple and there's a guy there who is lame and they heal him. And so, just like Jesus would heal people, now they're healing people. And uh, it, it's amazing, and then Peter preaches the sermon, but he gets arrested because of this. And people are wanting to know, like, 
Why are you doing this? Why are you speaking his name? Why are you speaking about the resurrection? Why are you doing all this stuff? You're not supposed to be doing that. And so Peter has to give an explanation. But if you look at Acts chapter 4 and verse 16, this is what the council who arrested Peter, this is what they're conspiring among themselves. It says in verse 15, But when they ordered them to leave the council, they began to confer with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For the fact that a noteworthy miracle has taken place through them is apparent to all who live in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. Now, my Bible sometimes frustrates me with things, and I'm sure any Bible that you read occasionally can, you wish they would translate things differently, because uh, what mine says in verse 16 right there is a noteworthy miracle has taken place. But that is not the word miracle, that is the word sign. That's the word that comes from Joel 2 that we've been seeing already. So I'm hoping your Bible's translated a sign. I'm pretty sure I looked up seven of them and they do, so I was happy to see that. But, uh, but it says, look, a sign took place, and it's apparent to everybody. In fact, if you look a little bit further down in verse 22, describing what they did, it says, for the man who was more than, uh, the man was more than 40 years old on whom this miracle of healing had been performed. Again, that's the word sign. Mine says miracle, but it's the same word that you see in Joel 2, and it's the same word that Jesus did signs and wonders. The apostles did signs and wonders. So now you see one of the signs that they do. They heal this man, and the council is trying to figure out what to do about it, and they order them, don't go preach in the name of Jesus. Don't go do any more of this nonsense. Let's just let this whole thing die out. Well, it's not going to die out. Uh, but then you get to um, chapter uh, 4, stay in the same chapter, and look at verse 29. This is uh, one of the prayers that's being offered uh, by the church, and it says in verse 29, And now, Lord, take note of their threats, and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence. And then notice verses 30 and 31. Remember Joel 2 talks about the Spirit falling on people, um, signs and wonders being done, and uh, that those who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Look in this passage for signs and wonders, the name of the Lord, and, uh, and uh, the Holy Spirit. Verse 30 says, And while you extend your hand to heal, and signs and wonders take place through the name of your holy servant Jesus, and when they had prayed, the place where they uh, had gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak the word of God with boldness. You see, like, all the major aspects of Joel 2 coming together at this moment as Peter is released from, from uh, the council and they're praying. You see signs and wonders again. You see the name of the Lord again, and you see the Holy Spirit filling the room again. And so this, this continues. Um, you look at Acts chapter 5, that's after Ananias and Sapphira said it right, uh, after they uh, lie about uh, the giving. And then uh, what happens to the church in verse 12? At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. Okay, that's your reference back to Joel 2. That's saying this didn't end on Pentecost. This is a new way of life, and it's continuing on beyond even Pentecost. If you look at chapter 6, this is where it gets interesting. In verse 8, you remember those seven men who were chosen— uh, they were chosen because some of the widows were being overlooked in the distribution of food, right? And at first we saw the Holy Spirit fall upon the disciples, and then we're, they're told, we'll choose seven men who have the Holy Spirit, uh, who are filled with the Holy Spirit, and they can go and solve this problem for you. Well, guess what you also see about some of these men? Uh, if you look at verse 8, Stephen, who's one of them, full of grace and power, was performing great 
wonders and signs among the people. So now you're seeing even others who are able to do these wonders and signs. And, and Stephen is now doing it. In fact, Stephen is going to have to give a defense for this. And as he does so, he's going to mention a Moses in a long sermon he gives in Acts chapter 7. And he's going to mention Moses in verse 36. And it says, This man led them out performing wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the sons of Israel, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. So he describes Moses as the one who did wonders and signs, but then he says, and God's going to raise up a prophet like me. And who's the prophet who we know performed wonders and signs? Jesus. And then you can see that those wonders and signs are continuing on even in the life of the church. Um, Look at Acts chapter 8. In Acts chapter 8, that's when the church goes to Samaria, right? And if you remember, the Holy Spirit, you see the starting with it there in Jerusalem, and then it eventually uh, the apostles have it, and then you see other people with it also, and then the Holy Spirit eventually goes to uh, Samaria. You see the same pattern happening right here with the wonders and signs. Um, in fact, uh, this is where the signs are being performed, and uh, Simon, the, the magician or the sorcerer, gets really interested in them. He wants the ability to give people the Holy Spirit, I think, because it stems from he sees some of these signs taking place. But if you look at like verse 6 of chapter 8, and the crowds with one accord were giving their attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs that he was performing. If you look at verse 13, it says, uh, even Simon himself believed And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip as he observed the signs and great miracles taking place, and he was constantly amazed. Uh, So there you have the signs again, um, only this time Philip is doing it. Philip is also one of those seven guys who was chosen, though. Stephen was one, and he got killed pretty soon. And then Philip is the one who takes the message to Samaria, and he is full of the Holy Spirit, and he is doing signs and wonders. You continue to read on through, and you'll see that these signs and wonders, they don't stop. Uh, They continue on in in the book of Acts, if you look at chapter 14 and verse 3, this is Paul's missionary journeys. This is where they're now not the the Jews in Jerusalem or Judea or Galilee or even Samaria, but now they're going out into Gentile territory, and guess what's going to go with them into Gentile territory? Well, the Holy Spirit, for one, as as we see, but also the signs and the wonders are going to go with them. And so you look at chapter 14 and verse 3, Uh, Therefore, they spent a long time there speaking, this is uh, Paul and Barnabas, by the way, uh, speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord who was testifying to the word of his grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. Where's that signs and wonders language coming from? It's coming from Joel 2. Just like at the Jerusalem conference. In Acts chapter 15, uh, the Jerusalem conference is another one of those passages where I think you see all the elements of Joel uh, 2 begin to emerge again. Uh, So if you look at Acts chapter 15 and verse 8, this is Peter. Remember, Joel 2, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Peter, in saying we should accept Gentiles, says, and God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. So he's like that Joel 2 thing that happened in Acts 2, it happens to the Gentiles also. So maybe we ought to be willing to, uh, to accept them because God seems to. And so there you have the pouring of the Spirit. But then Joel 2 also goes on to mention signs and wonders, right? Look at verse 12. It says, And all the people kept silent, and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul, and they were relating what 
signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And so now you're saying, not only did the Holy Spirit come to the Gentiles like Joel 2, the signs and the wonders were happening among the Gentiles, like in, like in Joel 2 prophecy. And then you have, uh, uh, if you look at uh, chapter 15 in verse uh, 14, this is James giving his response. And he says, Simon has related how God first concerned himself about taking from the Gentiles a people for his name. And with the words of the prophets, uh, they agree, just as it is written. And he quotes from, uh, from Amos chapter 9. But notice some of the, the language used in Amos 9. Look at verse 17. So that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. Now, there's a slight difference between calling on the name of the Lord and being called by the name of the Lord. Uh, but I think what you're seeing there is very similar type of language. The Gentiles are called by his name because even the Gentiles can call upon his name. And the Gentiles can receive the Holy Spirit just like the apostles did. And the Gentiles were able to experience the signs and the wonders just like you saw back there in Acts chapter 2. And so all of this is showing how the Holy Spirit signs and wonders, and the name of the Lord is being spread, starting with the early chapters of Luke and the birth of Jesus and all the amazing events that happened there, planting the seeds of it, growing into fruition in Acts chapter 2 when the church first begins, and you see all of this stuff taking place in incredible ways, and then you see it spreading from that point forward through the church, through uh, Samaria, through people who aren't apostles, through uh, even on the uh, Gentile mission, even at the Jerusalem conference, when they're finally deciding exactly what are we going to do with these Gentiles, you're seeing each of these elements of Joel 2 appear again. So all all of that is a way of saying that Joel 2 is not just about the day of Pentecost. And the Holy Spirit is central to every movement of the church and of the apostles throughout Luke and Acts. The Holy Spirit is the central unifying figure that stays throughout the whole story. It's like if you want to read the Acts of the Apostles to learn about Peter, you can, but eventually Peter kind of drifts away from the story. If you want to learn about Paul, you can, but you're not going to run into him until much later in the story. If you want to learn about Thomas, there's really not much about Thomas. Like, you know, if you're wanting to learn about the Acts of the Apostles, there's a couple of them you can learn a few things from. But who is the consistent character who's there from beginning to end? It's going to be the Holy Spirit. Uh, and, and I think that that's important to note, and I think that that's something that uh, perhaps should shape the way that we remember that we're not alone as Christians, and that we're, it's, not, it's not dependent upon our excellence in everything that we do. We should try, certainly, to be excellent in everything we should do. We should try our best in everything that we do, but success or failure is given by God, and God's presence is with us. God is working through us, and that's something that should give us hope and confidence now in what we do, but also for the future. I don't think that there's anything out there, I'm pretty confident, there's nothing out there that's more powerful than God and his Holy Spirit and what he can do. And so we should realize we have quite a bit at our disposal. We have quite a bit strengthening us, and we should live with confidence because of that. I don't want to spend as much time on this final note because, because the lesson this morning was long and this one's going to be kind of long, but, uh, but we'll, we'll st look at one final idea uh, from that Joel 2 prophecy, and that is, uh, look at chapter 2 and verse 21. It shall be 
that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Um, one thing that I do in my Bible study is uh, sometimes I get a little uh, marker. Sometimes even just a crayon works well. You can get a highlighter. Sometimes they bleed through the page, and I like to get things that don't bleed through. Uh, Oliver's crayons actually do pretty good at not bleeding through the page. I don't know if, if they're, they're a good long-term solution. But uh, themes that appear, I like to color them a certain color. And so, like, for example, for spirit, I have blue. You probably can't see that unless you have great eyes. Uh, for signs and wonders, I have those in kind of a pinkish color. And I have orange uh, for these places where it talks about the name of the Lord or calling on the name of the Lord. And uh, if you do that just with these, and there's, there's other things that are, you know, color-coded as well. But if you just kind of look at those, you'll see that that the name of the Lord on like every page, it pops up over and over and over again, uh, which means you've found a theme that's important. Uh, if you're reading through and your Bible starts getting really, really colorful, you know that you've, you've stumbled upon something that matters, uh, and it's something you should perhaps pay attention to. Acts will repeatedly talk about the name of the Lord, and there are, I guess, three things I want to note quickly about the name of the Lord as it's used in Acts. Uh, one is that the name of the Lord is used to describe like a ton of what the church does. They heal in the name of the Lord. They preach in the name of the Lord. They suffer in the name of the Lord. They were, after being beaten uh, by the council, it says they went on their way rejoicing that they were considered worthy to suffer for his name. So suffering was something they did in the name of the Lord. People believed in the name of the Lord. People repented in the name of the Lord. Uh, forgiveness was offered through the name of the Lord, and people are baptized in the name of the Lord. Uh, salvation, it comes, you know, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Salvation is something that comes through the name of the Lord. The name of the Lord is central to all that the church is doing. Kind of like Colossians 3.17. It's a pretty good summary statement. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Um, that idea of whatever you do in word or deed, you do it in the name of the Lord. You see that happening in Acts over and over again. Now, having said that, I think it's important to note, just because sometimes people are curious about it, I don't think that, I don't think doing something in the name of the Lord necessarily means there's a formula you have to speak in the name of the Lord. Uh, it, doing something in the name of the Lord is not the same as saying the phrase in the name of the Lord. Like when they are being beaten and suffering for the name of the Lord, they're not like with every lash saying the word that happened in the name of the Lord. Uh, when when uh, people are uh, preaching, I don't think they're always having to say, and I'm preaching now in the name of the Lord. And, and so sometimes, and we don't do it with a lot, but there are things where we can become kind of sticklers with saying, okay, but with this one thing, you have to use the phrase in the name of the Lord. And I don't really see that in, in Acts or, or in the New Testament. Doing something in the name of the Lord is more than just a formula that you repeat. It is, it is in fact, sometimes it's not even a formula that you repeat. It's just doing something by the authority or in honor of, of Christ. If you, if you have a king and he sends you to another country to, uh, to go uh, deliver a message, and you're delivering that message in his name, you're going to do it in a way that honors him, that's faithful to his will, that, uh, that he will approve of, and that's what it means to do something in the name of the Lord. You're doing it in a way that's faithful to Jesus, that honors him, and that he desires for you to do it, that he would approve of, in obedience to Jesus, or by the authority of Jesus. You know, I've, I've heard some people liken it to those police shows where they say, stop in the name of the law, you know? That, the idea is the authority of the law is behind what I'm saying 
And so you have to listen. Uh, when you're doing something in the name of the Lord, you're doing it by the authority of Jesus and faithfulness and to honor Jesus. And so uh, one is just, I think, clarifying that sometimes is, uh, is something people ask about. Uh, but another point is uh, that baptism is often connected in Acts to the name of the Lord. And interestingly, baptism is not just not only done in the name of the Lord, but baptism is spoken of as something you do to call on the name of the Lord. So you can see this early on in, uh, in Acts chapter 2, when he quotes Joel 2, and he finishes by saying, And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And then he goes and he preaches about Jesus. And at the end of this lesson, it says, The people were cut to the heart, and they asked men and brethren, What shall we do? And what's interesting is his response isn't, I just told you back in verse 21, call on the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Uh, like he, he just told them, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But when they ask that question, he doesn't respond by saying the words, call on the name of the Lord. He tells them to do something in the name of the Lord. He says to repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of the Lord or in the name of Jesus Christ. And you will receive the forgiveness of sins uh, and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And, or do it for the forgiveness of sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So I think in that you're getting the answer to the question of what must I do? And I don't think that's inconsistent with the idea of calling on the name of the Lord. As a matter of fact, throughout Acts, several times you'll see that language used of being baptized in the name of the Lord or in the name of Jesus. And I think that is one of the ways that you go about calling on that. And that becomes pretty clear in Acts chapter 22 and verse 16. This is Paul recounting his conversion. And he describes his baptism in, in these words. He says that Ananias, the guy who, who taught Paul, uh, he says, he told me, Paul, why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. And what he's saying is the way that he called upon the name of the Lord was by being baptized in the name of the Lord. Baptism is not just, even if you're silent when you go under the water and come out of the water, you're proclaiming something loudly. You're proclaiming something boldly, the lordship of Jesus over your life. Um, and I think First uh, Peter 3.21 kind of is, is, describes baptism in that same language. It is, uh, you know, baptism which now saves you, not the washing away of the filth from the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience towards God. There is something that is being spoken by you in that moment. Uh, and more than saying, Lord, Lord, which Jesus says, not everyone who says it to be Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom, but those who do the will of the Father. I think baptism is one of the ways that you call upon the name of the Lord. And uh, that's one of the reasons why baptism, forgiveness of sins, and calling on the name of the Lord are so often combined in uh, Luke and in Acts. In fact, one of the last verses of the Gospel of Luke talks about uh, verse 47 that repent of chapter 24, that repentance and forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations. Repentance and forgiveness of sins. Uh, how does Peter say you do that in Acts 2? Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins in the name of the Lord. <laughs> That's, and so all of this, I think, goes together. And uh, baptism is, even if you are silent in it, you are making a public proclamation about the lordship of Jesus. Finally, uh, I want to know it's one other thing about the way that the name of the Lord is used in, in Acts. In Joel 2, when we're told that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, the word Lord in that passage is the name of God. It is the name Yahweh. If you read that in your Old Testament, it's going to be in all capital letters because that's, it's the actual name of God, Yahweh, that's being used there. 
when that passage is translated into Greek, the word that's used to describe the name of God is the Greek word kurios. Uh, it's an important Greek word to know. It's the word that means Lord. When, it, when, you, when you're reading your New Testament, you see the word Lord, uh, it's going to be the Greek word kurios probably every time, or just about every time. Um, and so that, that's a word that is used to translate the, the divine name of God. Now, as you read Acts, something's going to be really interesting when you find out about calling on the name of the Lord. When he tells you to call on the name of the Lord, he does not say call upon Yahweh. He's actually going to use a different name to describe the name of the Lord, and the name that he uses is Jesus. As a matter of fact, uh, you can see it in Acts 2.38, in the name of Jesus Christ. Uh, you can see it in Acts chapter uh, 3 and verse 16. It says, on the basis of faith in his name, that is the name of Jesus, uh, which uh, has strengthened this man whom you see now uh, in the faith which comes to you. That's during Peter's sermon. And he's talking about the only reason this guy was able to be healed was because of the name of Jesus. And we're being told what the name is. In fact, repeatedly, the council is going to tell the disciples not to preach in his name anymore. And Peter is going to say that, uh, verse, verse uh, 10 of chapter 4, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this name this man stands here before you in good health. Verse 12 says, And there is salvation in no one else. Remember, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. Uh, so being saved... And the name of the Lord is the name Jesus. Um, and, and so you can, you can see this uh, go th going through here. You can see that uh, there eventually in Acts, he will start not saying just the name of the Lord, but like Acts 8.16 says they had been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And you'll see the name of the Lord and then just the name Jesus right after that. So it's like adding the name of Jesus to the phrase uh, from, from Joel 2. Uh, in Acts chapter 19 and verse 5, when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Uh, verse 13, you have some, uh, some exorcists who are trying to cast out uh, some, some evil spirits. It's not going too well. Uh, they're trying to do it in the name of Jesus, but the demon's like, I don't know you. I know Jesus, and I know Paul, but I don't know you, and the spirit beats them up, basically. Uh, but uh, in Acts 19 and verse 13, it says they were, uh, uh, the evil spirits were being, uh, they were trying to cast them out in the name of the Lord Jesus. And uh, then you can look at verse 17 of Acts 19, and it says, This became known to all, both Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord, Jesus, was being magnified. All of that is to say this. Jesus, throughout the Gospels, is pictured not just as a really, really good man, uh, not just as a really powerful prophet, not just as someone who, uh, you know, we could learn a lot from or even just someone who saved us. But Jesus is spoken of in a way that no other human being can. In fact, no human being can. Uh, because Jesus, <laughs> could you imagine taking a verse from the Old Testament that says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved, and you substituting the word Lord with your own name. Um, that would be the height of blasphemy. 
But it's not when the church does that with Jesus. Because Jesus is, in fact, the embodiment of the God of Israel. Jesus is the creator of this world in flesh. And so by doing that, you're seeing that Jesus is being displayed not just as the Savior, but also as God himself. And uh, that shows how high a view the church from the earliest days had of Jesus, calling him kurios uh, instead of just Savior or, or some of these other words. The word that is applied specifically to Yahweh is applied to Jesus. And now when you talk about calling on the name of the Lord, you're saying calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ on the name of the Lord Jesus. And that's a powerful statement about what you believe about Jesus doing that. If you believe Jesus is God, then you can make that statement. If you don't believe Jesus is God, you can't really make that statement. And that's one of the things that is central to the belief of the church in the book of Acts. So there's a lot more that we could get into. uh, And uh, hopefully this is shown that Joel 2 actually is kind of central to the way that Luke Acts is being told. And uh, you can take a whole lot of stuff back to that prophecy to show that what happened there the day of Pentecost was foreshadowed earlier and it led to something later. And it's not just Joel 2 was about Acts 2, but Joel 2 is about the whole story. And God pouring forth his spirit is something that defines what Christianity is about. And, uh, and I think that's really, really important for us to, to keep in mind. Uh, if there's anyone here tonight who would like to become a Christian, who would like to have your sins washed away in baptism and receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, we can, uh, would be more than happy to assist you in that uh, here this evening. If you have the need, please come and sit on the front row while we stand and as we sing. <laughs>